0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any
0: better than this.
1: Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes.
0: There really is no place like home.
1: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
0: This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today.
2: Neutrals like Finland and Sweden are thinking about, uh, and I think leaning now toward NATO membership. What's happened here in Ukraine is that Putin has redefined the idea of threat. So if you're in Finland now, the idea of just coordinating with NATO doesn't seem enough. In a way, Putin's gotten exactly the opposite of what he aspired to achieve here. He's going to have, at the end of the day, very probably more countries hugging his border. Very hard looking back historically to see a calculation as wrong-headed as this. It, you'd have to go back to uh, Hitler having the foolishness to invade uh, Russia in World War II to find something that was as boneheaded uh, calculation as what he's done in Ukraine.
3: John McLaughlin is the former deputy director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He is also a Russia expert and he joins us today to talk about the longer-term consequences of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. John, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It's great to have you on the show again. Thanks, Michael. Great to be with you. So, John, you wrote what I thought was a fascinating piece um, a few days ago, the title was Tectonic Shifts, How Putin's War Will Change the World. It was published in a new online publication called Grid. Our listeners can find your piece by searching John McLaughlin and Grid, and it pops right up. I strongly suggest that they go read it. I thought it, it, it's very insightful, and what I really want to do today is... is kind of walk through that with you because i think some of the points you make are are incredibly important but i wanted to start john with the conversation the way you started your piece with the conversation that you had with military historian tom ricks in the mountains of sicily a few years ago can you tell us about that conversation and then how that relates to um, what's happening in ukraine today
2: uh sure michael uh This was a trip that we used to take students to areas of conflict and then study them. So we were in Sicily looking at the Allied operation there in 1943, in which uh, Allied forces jumped from North Africa to Sicily on their way to the Italian campaign. And Rick's and I were standing in the mountains in Sicily and at the scene of a great battle between the Germans and the Americans, and And he said to me, do you, "Do you think we'll ever see anything like this again?" And what he meant was, you know big battles between major countries over large swaths of territory. He essentially was saying something like World War II. And as I recall, we both, you know thought for a minute and said, "You, yeah, probably not. we're We're probably past that. Well, you know that that's what got me thinking about this because when you see what's happening in Ukraine, the imagery is all World War Two. It's all what we have seen in all of the newsreels of, you know, soldiers standing around freezing, getting ready to go to battle, rubble, uh, people picking their way through their belongings, uh, refugees fleeing, um, civilian apartments and uh, installations collapsed, and it just got me thinking. This this is not something that anyone expected to see in Europe again, and the fact that it's happening there, I think has led a lot of people to say, uh, this is going to change the world. And, and so that's why I wrote this piece. I got to thinking about, well, is that true? Is it really going to change the world? And I just sort of said, what will it look like a year from now, was my task in this piece. And as you know, uh, better than anyone, uh, when you're speculating about the future, you're on you know dangerous mm-hmm. ground in ice. But I thought, with everyone saying that, why not test the proposition? So that's what I was trying to do here.
3: So, John, when, when, when I've talked to people about this, one of the first things I say is that you know geopolitics, um, geostrategic matters, know are kind of like plate tectonics they move very slowly but every once in a while there is an earthquake and this is an earthquake this is going to have long-term consequences and and i think when you get to the end of your piece you know when you get to the end of this this thought exercise that you've done here that i think you really make a strong case that the world is going to be a fundamentally different place you know, a year from now than it is today. Um, and maybe the place to start is exactly where you do with Russia, and where Russia's likely to be a year from now.
2: Well, I believe the most profound and certain changes will be with Russia. Um, one can disagree with that, but I, I, I think that's where they will be. And if you think about it, before this war, uh, Putin had a record of Let's say a mixed record, but one in terms of the world looking at Russia was um, had some positive elements. I mean, he, he had taken Russia from a unstable, unpredictable, volatile place in 1999 when he came to power, and 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 given it prominence on the world stage with uh, things like his intervention in Syria and really a. A, a diplomacy that was uh, pretty impressive in places as far from Russia as uh, the Middle East, Africa, Latin America. Mm-hmm. And while we objected to a lot of the things he had done, taking over Crimea and so forth, uh, the world still looked at Russia as a, as a major power. And he was, um, you know, a participant in all major international gatherings. Well, I, I don't see how Russia emerges from this as anything other than an international pariah and so he's sort of forfeited by virtue of what everyone is now i think commonly agreeing even if uh, even if it cannot be legally dealt with yet but people are commonly agreeing that russia is committing war crimes in ukraine he's he's forfeited russia's place uh, at the world table uh, i can't imagine that he will be admitted to you know, G20 or G7, uh, that he will be uh, greeted in major capitals with the possible exception of uh, Beijing and maybe Delhi uh, in the future. And uh, people who are working with him, uh, who had moved about on the world stage with some respect and access uh, as foreign minister, prime minister, major other, other major figures, are now seen as complicit in something that nearly the whole globe condemns. So what does this all add up to at at the end of uh, a year, a year from now? Uh, I think Russia carries very little weight in the world, uh, which didn't have to be the case, even with all of the things he had done previously, the incursions in, in, in Ukraine, the takeover of Crimea, the poisonings. Nonetheless, uh, People didn't look the other way, but they kind of accepted that as this is a this is a this is the way Russia is. But we'll deal with it. So I think from now on, I don't think people are going to want to deal with him on the same basis. And that and that means if you're in Russia now and you're in the military or what we call the power ministries, the intelligence services, you must be asking yourself: Is this the kind of world we want to live in? Is this what we want Russia to be in the world? And and that could reverberate on Putin's personal position at some point. I say in this piece, without making a firm prediction, I just say that in the years that I've watched him, you've watched him, at least 22 years now, um, it's the first time I can imagine that he might uh, lose power at some point, through some process in Russia that we can't quite envision at this point.
3: You know, John, it's... um... It's deeply ironic, right, that Putin wanted to go down in history as, as the leader who made Russia great again, you know, as one of the great czars. And here, you're describing a situation that's just the opposite, as the leader that significantly weakened Russia. Uh, it's just, it's just, just deeply ironic.
2: There's so many ironies here. Uh, It is deeply ironic. Uh, I read the other day, uh, I take it as fact, that in uh, one Russian school, uh, teachers were, rather students, were turning in a teacher for speaking uh, a line that defied or was at odds with Russian policy. That's exactly what happened in Nazi Germany. In other words, there are plenty of Evidence and examples of in Nazi Germany, Hitler Youth being so imbued with uh, the the doctrine that uh, was being put out in in Nazi propaganda that 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 if, if teachers misspoke in some way, they would lose their jobs, to be turned in. Mm. So the irony here is: is he said that he's he's attacking Ukraine? This was his initial justification for the purpose of denazifying it. When in some respects he may be nazifying his own country, Which strikes me as the ultimate irony here.
3: Which is one of the reasons why so many young, educated Russians have left the country and you know may never return. Which is well, another.
2: That's something. That's something I've thought about a lot. I, I you know I've dealt with a lot of uh, Russian, mostly former officials or academics or institute members and so forth, and I, I know you have too. Uh, while I've disagreed with them on policies and even on Crimea, I could understand the case they would make, but I can't believe that they would be endorsing what he's doing now. And I suspect a number of them may have left, or if they haven't left, they are probably, um, mortified by what they're seeing, but I could be wrong. I mean, I maybe there is more support for this in Russia than I can imagine. Uh, as I point out in the piece, uh, Reliable surveys show that you know fifty one percent of the Russian population uh, still admires Stalin, so it may be that this is a universe of opinion that we don't fully understand
3: john in a in an email that you shared with me um, and a couple other former senior agency officials, you talked about how average Russians might be looking at the killing of women and children in Ukraine. Thought you told a fascinating story about drinking toasts with <laughs> Russians. Can yeah. you can you share that? Because I thought it was really powerful.
2: Well, you know, it's a very personal thing and very uh, anecdotal, I guess. But you know, and when I would be in Russia, either as uh, an official uh, for conversations with uh, Russian officials or Russian intelligence services. And as you know, we, we always tried to maintain at least formal contacts with them. Or when I've been there since uh, as a, a university person, and you're, you're sitting around and drinking toast with Russians as, as the night wears on and as the toasts increase in number, and uh, everyone, particularly on the Russian side, grows very sentimental. And as you're toasting everyone from your presidents to your friends and your teachers, at the end of the night, you're always toasting your mothers, your wives, your children. And and that's the moment of I think greatest warmth and sentimentality in these exchanges. And so, you know, the, the idea what we're seeing visibly of, of mothers and children uh, suffering and being leaving their families and getting on trains again m- mothers and children getting on trains imagery right from world war ii mm-hmm. uh, fathers being left behind or in some cases disappearing all of that uh runs so counter to what i think is in the hearts of most russians at a very base level
3: i so think so too yeah
2: yeah, you probably have had that experience. Yes, yes. Something, something fundamentally wrong here that is between the imagery and the news. And the, I know Putin has a very strong propaganda apparatus now and not much needs to be said about it. Everyone, I think, understands that. But it's hard for me to believe that across 11 time zones in a country like that, the, the truth of all of this is is going to get through at some point. And I just don't know how that's going to hit people it may be something that well we'll wait and see
3: john in the section of your piece where uh, you talk about russia you talk you also talk about ukraine um, a little bit in in two two different perspectives one is a possible ukrainian insurgency against russian any russian forces that remain in the country and then um, the second is the rebuilding of ukraine can you talk a little bit about that
2: Well, uh, you and I both spent enough time at CIA to see a lot of uh, insurgencies and uh, also to see a period in the 1980s when the CIA sponsored or or supported uh, insurgency against the Russians in Afghanistan. And so this is something that the U.S. government, broadly speaking, but particularly the intelligence services are very experienced at doing. And so when I looked at this, this is one reason why I think Russia ultimately cannot win this. And we're talking now about a new offensive they're going to carry out, presumably in the East, that everyone predicts will be World War II-like, in the sense that it it could turn into tank battles on flat agricultural land. Um, And... Let's just make the assumption for a moment here that that even though I think the Ukrainians will have the upper hand in terms of will and uh, morale, that uh, it's conceivable that Russian firepower could, could overwhelm them at that point. But even if Putin is able somehow to dominate the country in a military conventional sense, uh, I, I'm convinced there will be, because of what he's done, a robust Ukrainian insurgency that will bleed the Russian occupiers uh, for years. And and the, the conditions are set for that, you know, for a, an insurgency to be acceptable or to be, I'm sorry to say, uh, to be successful, or you, you need three things. It it needs to be somehow aligned with uh, an overall policy, not not the thing that is the solution, but something that adds to the overall policy a country is following. Mm-hmm. Check that one off because it's clear that the United States favors an, an independent Ukraine. Uh, second, there needs to be uh, a safe haven of some sort, and and that exists in the sense that you've got four. NATO countries on the border of Ukraine that can be the safe haven within which an insurgency can be resupplied and trained and so forth. And and third, you need a, a willing populace. And of course, you have that in Ukraine in an entire country. So I think um, the stage is set for an insurgency here almost no matter what, uh, unless the Ukrainians, uh, we can hope, somehow prevail in a conventional fight and and it never comes to that. But as we see all of this destruction in Ukraine, the, the, the broken buildings, the rubble, the, the transportation uh, arteries that are destroyed, um, it must be rebuilt. And I can't think of a better way to build it, to rebuild it, than to somehow take all of these reserves that we have sequestered from the Russians that are currently uh, blocked, that they're frozen in different parts of the world, put them in some sort of an escrow and make them pay for the rebuilding of Ukraine with uh, this pretty large trove of hard currency reserves that they've, they've tucked away, w- which is now, of course, causing them a problem because when they try to finance their war, countries from whom they wish to buy supplies would like to be paid in hard currency, and they have very little hard currency now, much less hard currency than they had before. So, it's another irony in all of this. If if the world can organize itself to do this, it should be Russian money that rebuilds, Russian hard currency that rebuilds Ukraine.
3: I like that idea. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with John McLaughlin. John, your, your next section in your piece is about the U.S. and Europe and where where they might be um, a year from now, maybe start with the U.S. and and then go to Europe.
2: Well, after the withdrawal from
3: Afghanistan,
2: um, I understand the President's decision, but I think we can all say that it wasn't carried out in the best way for whatever reason. Not not casting any blame here, but just it 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 was it was not a good it it didn't look it didn't look good and it wasn't it wasn't carried out well correct so the world looked at that and and wondered about the competence of the u.s and the the leadership capability of the u.s Well, one of the things that comes out of this confrontation with russia over ukraine is i think that the u.s has demonstrated that it can lead that it can marshal a coalition that it can uh, fortify its alliances that people are looking for U- U.S. leadership. And, and so the U.S. comes out of this, I think, uh, having eased a lot of those doubts, perhaps not totally, but eased a lot of them, and also demonstrated that among the various forces competing for influence on the global order, let's say China, Russia, the United States, The United States is really the only one able to marshal this kind of coalition. So the U.S. comes out of this, I think, with some of those doubts eased and with opportunities in the future to lead, to exert influence, um, and to, most importantly, fortify alliances, which in the whatever competition we have with China will be our force multiplier. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that. For Europe... I think just this week we start to see something coming true that I anticipate in the piece, which is that neutrals like Finland and Sweden are thinking about, uh, and I think leaning now toward, NATO membership. Well, it's obvious why they might be thinking that way. Up to this point, of course, a country like Finland, you'll recall, of course, through the whole Cold War period, Finlandization was a noun that described a, a neutrality that was on the one hand. Um, not favorable to the Soviet Union, but certainly sought not to offend it. And Finland walked that line very successfully. Well, for years, it's been coordinating its policy with NATO. And so on one level, uh, you could say, "Hmm, do they really need membership? Because after all, they have some of the benefits of membership now. But I think what's happened here in Ukraine is that Putin has redefined the idea of threat. Mm. So if you're in Finland now, the idea of just coordinating with NATO doesn't seem enough. You want that Article 5, that, that that capacity to mobilize all of these allies with you should you, your territory be pierced uh, by the Russians, which, once again, if you went back five years, I think most people would have not found it plausible that that would happen. But in a way, what Putin has done here has crystallized the idea of threat in the way that 9 11 crystallized the threat from counterterrorism, which you remember, of course, vividly. So, for Europe, it means now uh, a new sense of real threat, which successive presidents tried to convey with all of those pleadings to increase defense spending over many years in many administrations. Well, Putin's done the work for us.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, we even see, of course, Germany. Uh, abandoning decades of hesitation uh, on participation in military matters generally um, and countries now thinking about joining NATO who would have not considered that just a few years ago. So in a way, Putin's gotten exactly the opposite of what he aspired to achieve here. He's going to have, at the end of the day, very probably more countries hugging his border with NATO Membership than before this. So what a gigantic miscalculation. It's very hard looking back historically to see a calculation as, as wrong headed as this. It, you'd have to go back to uh, Hitler having the uh, foolishness to invade uh, Russia <laughs> in World War II um, to find something that was as boneheaded a uh, calculation as what he's done in Ukraine. The other part of it is, I, I, it's hard for me to understand why he and those with him didn't understand what they were going to encounter in Ukraine. Um, maybe it was bad intelligence, maybe people were afraid to tell him, maybe they just didn't know. But anyone who's been to Ukraine in recent years knows that it's uh, not the same country that it was when the Soviet Union broke up. There's a new generation there, uh, they're aspiring to be. Uh, prosperous, pluralistic Western c- country; they have a real democracy. Uh, he has fortified by this their sense of nationhood. Why he ever could have imagined that they would be welcomed as uh, welcomed at all, uh, as as invaders, is beyond me. But once again, there may be something about the the Russian thinking that we just don't understand.
3: John, it occurred to me while you were talking about Putin ending up with the exact opposite of what he sought in Europe, um, is another one of the deep ironies that are at play here.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
3: John, another section of your piece that really caught my attention was uh, the one on um, nuclear issues. Yeah. um, Nuclear questions. I think that's really important. Can you share those ideas with us?
2: Yeah, I feel strongly about that one. And it's uh, it's one that I think um, doesn't resonate as clearly with a lot of people, I suspect. My interest in that was stimulated some years ago. We all, of course, you and I both were involved in nuclear arms control and such things while at the CIA. But in my private uh, life since leaving the agency, I spent a good deal of time uh, in conferences out at Stanford some years ago last decade, that were convened by George Schultz and uh, former Defense Secretary Perry on the issue of nuclear matters. And their effort, uh, I think often misunderstood, was to drive the world toward uh, more restrictive policies on, on nuclear weapons. In fact, they aspired to get the world to zero nuclear weapons, knowing that that was not something you could do in the near term. And President Obama, at the beginning of his administration, embraced this idea. In 2009, he gave this speech in Prague that was quite affirmative on that whole idea, that we were going to work very hard to reduce nuclear weapons. In in fact, though, not a lot happened after that. He did get the new START agreement in 2011, and and that's good. But for the most part, uh, we have... In recent years, I think, tended to take nuclear weapons kind of for granted in the sense that everyone has, I think, generally accepted they're not really for war fighting, they are for deterrence. Mm-hmm. And what Putin has done here, he's kind of broken a taboo. Uh, the taboo being, we don't talk about using nuclear weapons, um, it, it, it just starts uh, a conversation in a bad place. So by suggesting that he might at some point go to a nuclear weapon, I'm assuming he means tactical nuclear weapons because that is, at least formally in Russian doctrine, that they can uh, use them if they're conventionally overwhelmed or about to be overwhelmed. They have this strange phrase, escalate to de-escalate, which I guess means use a nuclear weapon so that everyone understands this is serious and we have to negotiate or we have to stop uh, fighting. Well, of course, that's a crazy policy because no one knows what happens when you use a nuclear weapon. What is the escalation cycle? And we've, we've stayed away from all of that. And, and the way that we have generally kept this all under control is through arms control negotiations, largely with Russia, where over the years we would sit down around a table and we would discuss all of this and we would be very transparent with each other. As you know, you know, uh, U.S. government people, including intelligence people, would be on inspection teams and so forth inspecting Russia's destruction of its weapons and they would be on teams inspecting ours and so forth well all of that sort of proceeded into the background and what Putin has done is bring it forward and remind us that yes these weapons are there and yes someone could actually think about using them for god's sake and i think that has to renew not just interest but renew vigorous interest in, in non-proliferation and arms control generally. Uh, there, is a, there is a need now to, to modernize the arms control agreements we have because even the, the latest, the new START agreement, which they've now uh, renewed as a stopgap for five years, even that one does not take account of new technologies like hypersonic weapons, it, of course, does not include the Chinese, who have now laid down a whole new field of uh, missile silos, apparently uh, intended for nuclear weapons. They don't want to talk about it. The Chinese have no particular interest in, in, in getting into negotiations. But I think there's probably a way to draw them into that because they do have a, an interest in the nonproliferation regime. And um, there is a nonprolifer there's a uh, NPT, nonproliferation treaty review conference coming up in August. The Chinese will certainly be there. Uh, I don't know where the Russians will be at that point, but there there is an opportunity coming up in just a few months to focus the world's attention on nuclear weapons again, which we have to, in the end of the day, you know, we have to realize th- those things are the things that can destroy humanity. We're doing a lot of other things to, to put the planet at risk, of course, but including climate, but... Uh, you know those are things that, and and, and there's so much nuclear explosive material in the world that is not under uh, globally approved uh, security standards. Right. So that's my basic point. Is Putin has focused us again on nuclear stuff, and we need to heed the uh, we need to heed that
3: and act on it. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us.
2: conquer the weekend in the all-new hyundai santa fe visit hyundaiusa.com or call
0: 562-314-4603 for more details hyundai there's joy in every journey
3: um john your last section is about a very important topic it's about china um, and the lasting effects that russia's invasion of ukraine might have on china
2: yeah i think um What Putin's done in Ukraine will have a lasting effect on China and on how China deals with the world and ultimately how the world deals with China. As you know, as as your listeners, I'm sure, do know, uh, the Chinese and Russians now have a partnership, which in their last meeting was labeled as having no limits, uh, unquote. Uh, this was before the invasion of Ukraine. And it involves Exchange of information on military matters, it exchange, exchange of uh, scientific and technical matters relating to defense, uh, joint maneuvers, all of that. And so this is something that everyone, I think, in the United States has looked on with some concern, obviously. But um, Putin has put Xi in a difficult spot here on a couple of levels so far. The Chinese have walked a fine line, which has tipped, of course, more toward Russia than toward anyone else, in the sense that they are still replaying Russian propaganda about things we know not to be true. Uh, the, you know, the U.S. financing bio weapons labs in Ukraine, claims like that, uh, claims that somehow NATO was genuinely threatening Ukraine. That, so they are blaming this publicly and in propaganda on NATO and on the United States and they know that's not true so they're 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 magnif- they're rebroadcasting his his propaganda on the other hand they also say through their ambassadors and uh, their UN representatives and so forth that they They deplore the violence. Uh, They're prepared to help with humanitarian issues in Ukraine. They respect Ukraine as a country. And in fact, they have a rather uh, deep uh, economic uh, relationship with Ukraine. And so they're trying to find some mid-ground here where they can have it both ways. And so far, they've managed to do that. But if this continues, if you project everything forward and you make certain assumptions, that is that, 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 that these sanctions stay on and, and increase, that they continue to uh, wring uh, vitality out of the Russian economy, that the world continues to treat uh, Putin as a pariah, that most of the world condemns what he's doing. Um, the, the Chinese may find themselves as just about their only champion for something that most of the world has condemned. Mm-hmm. And is that where they want to be when they are basically presenting themselves as an alternative, uh, alternative example of what world order could be? Uh, I don't think so. But I can see this ending in one of two ways. For the Chinese, Uh, the first way, and and maybe the more likely way, is they never break with Russia, but Russia comes out of this so weakened that uh, Xi basically is able to exploit the Russian relationship uh, in any way he wishes, because the Russian partner will be weakened and have very little influence in the relationship, and yet can still bring something to it that Xi can benefit from on a narrow, in a narrow sense. Or, uh, this is hard to imagine, but if you play it all forward, we could reach a point in a year or so where the Chinese look at this and say, you know, weighing the costs versus the benefits, it's costing us more than it's benefiting us to stay close to this, uh, this guy who now carries very little weight in the world, um, except for the irritation factor with the US doesn't really bring us a lot so I, in that in that scenario perhaps the least the less likely uh, you could see the chinese kind of walking away from him or at least taking the relationship down to a you know very formal base level but the other you know larger dimension of this for the chinese is they both in in slightly different ways, represent an alternative model to the global order that the United States has um, authored and represented and defended for 80 years. They, they, They project an alternative model. What Putin is doing there is not a very good advertisement for the model. And on that level, too, this could turn out to be more of a cost than a benefit for China. But in a way, China's the biggest puzzle in all of this. It's the biggest puzzle in all of this. And in a way, they could perhaps have the greatest influence uh, here. They could either broker, they could offer uh, find a way to broker some sort of peace, or they could move away from Putin and, and basically pull the last prop out from under him. Um, so what they do really is going to matter here, both for them and for the rest of the world.
3: It It actually could be... You know, if they thought about this right, um, playing the role of broker you yeah. know, would be a step into global leadership for them. It's just so countercultural, right from a from a Chinese role in the world perspective. But it would yeah. be the smart move on their part.
2: It would really be a smart move. Uh, it would. It would. And and even to help help Putin find an exit ramp out of this somehow. Uh, the exit ramps are shrinking, I think. We used to think there were exit ramps here, but I, I, about the only one I can see now for him is to get some small concession from the Ukrainians. And I think that trade space is shrinking daily. And then to portray that in his media, which he controls as, you know, mission accomplished, and, uh, and, and march home and have a parade. Many Russians might buy that, but... Uh, don't think the rest of the world would but that is that is still a kind of exit ramp that is open to him with uh, and a lot of inventiveness to get there i guess
3: john thank you thank you so much um, for joining us this has been a fascinating conversation and i'll again encourage our listeners to um, go to grid.com and um, you can read john's piece but john thank you so much for uh, for spending time with us Thank you, Michael. Always great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, too. That was John McLaughlin. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode
0: of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News.
4: It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea.